the 16th of August, 2023. I thought I would just give a short talk on mindfulness this evening. This is our Uposita day, our one, one pra, our Lunar Observance Day. And so we had our Patimokha recitation earlier this afternoon. Uh, in the morning, we had the alms round. So it's a fairly full day. And we're actually only two weeks into our Vasa period, our rains retreat period. So we've got uh, quite a ways to go with that. And we're a big community now, so Abhayagiri is not like the past, not like not like it was in the beginning. So because we've got a big community, there's more coming and going and more appointments and more town trips. So we have to figure out how to work with that. And that's just something, because we have a sangha, the word sangha actually just means community. So as we have a bigger sangha, bigger community, then then we have to work with all these different things, all these different variables. And uh, when I I know the long first maybe ten years or so being here, we would I would feel hemmed in by the community sometimes, feel hemmed in, want to just get away or or break free somehow. But then I would reflect that I also had that feeling before I joined the Sangha, before I joined the community. So it's just kind of the same feeling playing itself out. And we would do the winter retreat. At the end of the winter retreat, sometimes we would go on these winter retreat picnics where we'd go to the coast and then we'd be on the coast for the afternoon and then we'd come back to the monastery. And sometimes being on the coast, I would think, well, I'd like to just walk down the beach and just keep walking, not go back to the monastery. So there's that desire for freedom that uh, comes up. I don't want to have to go back with the group. I want to just walk and keep walking. So then I eventually got to do that. Eventually got to go Tudong, and that's it's the heart sang at that experience really being able to walk and then not turn back, walk and keep walking, keep walking forward, not actually go back to the monastery, not immediately anyway. It's a very good experience to have and be on the open road. And we're still within the confines of the monkhood, the confines of the precepts. But there's something about just getting out and being on the open road, something in the human heart that loves that. It's quite interesting. And these Tudong practices that we do sometimes and very good for mindfulness. And why is that? And I think it's because when you don't know where you're going to eat each day and where you're going to sleep each night, then the mind just becomes more attuned to conditions, becomes more resourceful. And even though I haven't done that much Tudong, done fairly short Tudongs compared to some of the monks at Wapananachat or some of the monks in Thailand. But still, I had this reflection come up that I could see why 
the disciples of Ajahn Mun back in the day in Thailand became, why their mindfulness became so strong, why it became so honed through the Tudong practice, through the practice of wandering and not necessarily settling down in any one place. So doing some Tudong practice helped in a way kind of get that get that out of my system, that sense of going to the coast and just coming back to the monastery and feeling somehow unfulfilled. Just feeling like, oh yeah, you know, I'd like to actually get out there and keep walking down the beach and sleep on the beach. And then I eventually got to do that. And it was great. It's a great experience. But now the experience is different, so I can reflect back on that experience. I can reflect on my experience now. And now if I go to the coast or go to the beach, I don't have that same suffering come up. I don't have that same pressure in my mind thinking, you know, oh, I don't want to go back to the monastery. So now it's different. Or or I'd be, I can remember back when I first ordained, be driving in the car, going to the Bay Area or going somewhere on some business and kind of, being in the car, feeling like I just want to get to my destination or I just want to get back. And now the experience is different. Now being in the car, it's the experience is kind of the same and there's not that same pressure in the mind. There's not that same hope to just get to my destination. I feel fairly peaceful just sitting in a car doing nothing. And so I attribute that to just mindfulness built up over the years. Definitely less suffering. So I think that when there's a moment of mindfulness, we're not actually suffering in that moment. So when there's a moment of mindfulness, there's not actually suffering. When there's a moment of mindfulness, there's not actually anger in that moment. When there's a moment of mindfulness, there's not actually greed arising in that very in that moment that there is genuine mindfulness. It's more like equanimity. Like in the teachings of the fourth jhana, it says mindfulness purified through equanimity so it is a state of equanimity that we're cultivating mindfulness and equanimity really go together or you see in the suttas the arhant is the one who is always mindful that's one of the epithets for the arhant one who is always mindful so we can see these kinds of phrases and these teachings to start to understand what is this mindfulness what is it actually I think it's really important to understand what it actually is that we're practicing here. It's like the that phrase, I think Lung Pa Pasano inserted it at the end of the book on Nibbana, the island that uh, that he did co-authored with Lung Pa Amaro. Uh, yo, the the quote from Yogi Berra, was that it? Yeah, if you if you don't know where you're going, you're going to end up somewhere else. Yeah. So if we don't know what mindfulness is, yeah, we're going to end up somewhere else. We're going to end up doing something else. We're going to end up on some other path. So it is good to know what it is because a moment of mindfulness can really put the brakes on a crazy mental state. It can really, it really helps. It's the path to the deathless, according to our teachers, according to the Theravada. Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. So it's you can see that it's coupled with equanimity. And 
mindfulness can really, if we have some sort of, it doesn't mean necessarily cutting off thoughts, but it does mean cutting off moods, specifically unwholesome moods. So that's what we call establishing mindfulness. So mindfulness is when we, when we establish mindfulness, when we say to establish mindfulness, what we're pointing to is we're actually reminding ourselves what's, what's wholesome in the moment, what's the wholesome thing to be doing in the moment, whether it's coming back to the sensation of the breath when we're meditating or whether it's reflecting on gratitude in order to undo some sort of resentment in order to make the mind more wholesome. And then it's coupled with a quality called sampajanya, or clear awareness, and then that's the actual awareness part. Say we're practicing mindfulness and awareness of the breath. So reminding ourselves to come back to the breath in the meditation, that's the mindfulness part. And then the sampajanya, the, the clear awareness part, is then experiencing and fully knowing the sensation of the breath. Or if we have mindfulness of the body, when we establish that, we remind ourselves that, oh, now is the time. We actually use our thought. We use our thought in a wholesome way, in a skillful way, to say, well, now is the time to focus on the body. And then the sampajanya part is to either uh, notice and feel the sensations in the body. If we're doing, say, body scanning, where we're actually feeling the sensations in the body, feeling where there might be tension, feeling where there might be a sense of ease, or it might actually be doing more of an analytical meditation in terms of recollecting the 32 parts of the body or recollecting the body as being simply elements and bringing that into a contemplation on not-self. So we're learning how to use our thought, and that's not a part from mindfulness. And it is coupled with equanimity. So we're developing just a very sober view if we're, of the body if we're doing mindfulness of the body. And this very simple kind of ordinary practice of mindfulness really does, you can see over time, really does reduce the suffering. So coming back to what I was saying at first, say being a one vasa bhikkhu and going to the coast and feeling like, oh, what am I doing here? This is kind of a tourist activity that we're doing and it's kind of lame and and we're just going to go back to the monastery. We're just going for a walk on the beach and going back to the monastery so I would attribute those thoughts to a lack of mindfulness and just this idealistic mind. I want to be some somewhere else, some other time, you know, doing better than this, you know, and kind of attributing it to the current situation. And yet now, just going to the coast, going for a walk on the beach, it's just can be equanimity it's it's really ordinary it's not like it's going to be better somewhere else on some mountaintop somewhere else so taking refuge in mindfulness being able to use mindfulness at any time i could actually say maybe now i do kind of look forward to getting back to the monastery if i've been out for a while because here there's that built-up energy of people cultivating mindfulness so I do experience that as as pleasant now. So mindfulness can be something that puts the brakes 
on a negative mood that's coming up. And it can act as a foundation. It can and does act as a foundation for any wholesome mental states that we haven't yet developed. It gives us some ground to stand on. And so when we establish mindfulness, it's a reminder. The precepts also help us to establish mindfulness. So when we keep, say, the five precepts or the eight precepts, the ten precepts or the 227 precepts, then mindfulness, those precepts really help us to see our intentions with mindfulness. So it's like we're, we're stopping and checking ourselves. Oh, wait, is that against the precept? Okay, it's not. Okay, we can move forward with that. Or it is. Okay, well, let's, let's check the mental state. Let's check the intention. Is it wholesome or unwholesome? So the mindfulness goes hand in hand with just our daily reflections and contemplations that we do. Uh, mindfully reflecting on using alms food. Uh, Ajahn Sona re, re, uh, translated as mindfully reflecting. In our chant, we do wisely reflecting, but you could also think of it as mindfully reflecting. So the way we use food, the way we relate to food, is it just something to get distracted by, to get lost in? Or is it something that we're using just to sustain the body so we can practice more mindfulness? Uh, the lodging, the dwelling place, uh, cultivating mindfulness around that, you know, keeping it neat and tidy, keeping it clean. We can reflect when we clean the lodging, seeing that there's bits of our body, that can be body mindfulness, <clears throat> bits of our body on the floor, bits of skin, bits of hair that, that fall off of us all the time. This is just ordinary, but it's very important to contemplate these things. <clears throat> it's it's quite interesting that uh, <clears throat> contemplating these these types of things is actually what leads to the deathless. These ordinary things. You know, who would have thought that contemplating skin and hair falling off our body onto the floor of our kuti could lead to insight? Or it's like the novice. Dabba Malaputa, during his, during his novice ordination, they're shaving his head and he's watching the hair fall to the ground and contemplating impermanence and attains arhantship at the age of seven. So, so these, these things are possible. And uh, he did that through a moment of mindfulness. So when I first ordained, I had these images of myself. I used to think, okay, I want to be a yogi in a cave in the Himalayas, and that's where it is. That's where the Dhamma is. Or I want to be on some, you know, attaining some sort of really incredible state, or doing some sort of unbelievably difficult practice, or fasting for long periods of time. And yet, that in and of itself isn't really going to lead to mindfulness. Yeah, it might. It might be helpful to fast sometimes. It might be helpful to go into the mountains and be in secluded sometimes that's not really where it is it's just right here right now it's not somewhere else so it's very ordinary and it's hard to accept that for me it was it's it's been hard to accept that that this is all just very ordinary and even if we go onto a mountain somewhere it's still very ordinary it's just this body and mind it's still just 
hair of the body, hair of the head, nails, teeth, and skin. It's just, where is it? It's, is, it in the, is it in the monastery? Is it on a mountaintop? Is it at the beach? doesn't matter. We can be cultivating mindfulness at any time. So it's, I'm quite grateful that, uh, that I don't have that feeling anymore of really just wanting to be somewhere else. It's, it's quite, quite a relief, actually. <laughs> Maybe it just happens when you turn 40. I don't know. <laughs> it's a natural maturing process. But, uh, but it, uh, it comes through contemplation as well. And that's not some, it's not some sort of attainment or some sort of claim. It's just, wow, I'm just noting, like, okay, that thing that was making me suffer before in this particular way isn't there anymore. And it's, oh, what a relief. It can just be ordinary. You can just, don't have to make a problem out of just being here now. <laughs> in the past, being here now was a problem. Now it isn't a problem. <laughs> Wow, amazing, wonderful, <laughs> and ordinary. So, so yeah, putting in a plug for, for just mindfulness. It's not off somewhere in the future. It's not off where, where conditions are going to meet my preferences. You know, I, I used to think that, oh, yeah, it's going to be when maybe I'll find a, some place in the future where all these conditions kind of meet my ideals of how I think sh- things should be but it's actually never going to be that way. And, and things, are, things are always going to be a bit messy. Human relationships are always going to be a bit messy. Our situation, our mind is always going to be a bit messy. And so mindfulness can... It's more about seeing that with mindfulness, seeing that, and then just letting go of trying to control it, letting go of, of identifying with it, letting go of investing in it. That's what mindfulness helps us to do. And um, then with, with mindfulness, then the mind has a sense of refreshment. It's very refreshed. It uh, doesn't, doesn't have worries. And it has, it has energy. It has light. And so it's not, it's not dark, contracted. Like the Buddha would say, like a mind, like an open sore, where everything that touches it is just maddening. Everything that touches it is an impingement, but it's more like the mind, like water, where it just flows into any situation. And whether there's praise or criticism, don't get shaken by that too much. You know, whether there's gain or loss, don't get shaken by that too much. Because you know, mindfulness sees, mindfulness also sees impermanence, and it it really leads to that insight. I think that insight of impermanence and. The insight into impermanence leads to a lessening of clinging. Nothing is worth clinging to. So mindfulness really acts as a foundation for all these things. So I'll just leave it at that this morning for your consideration, for your contemplation.